Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Um, it's also not just questions that you can contribute, but something that may have inspired you this week or something that you feel is, is worth sharing. Um, I'm a, in a certain sense a bit of a, just a facilitator here. The spirit behind these gatherings, for those of you who may be new, is really just to hang out, um, to create a sense of community. Uh, and interestingly enough, I recently read, I shared this in the class I'm teaching, I shared this on Tuesday, sociologist um, Emil Durkheim um, said that from her research, she was able to determine that actually loss of sense of community, loss of belonging was a central ingredient behind suicide. Um, so I thought that was somewhat revelatory. And so what I do with these things, again, these are completely spontaneous, uh, more or less. I do a few minutes of like review presentation, just a tad, just to get things moving, so to speak. And then as Andy was saying, really the heart of these things are your contributions, your questions. I'm, I'm really basically here to spend time with you all, which I actually really enjoy. Um, but I wanna review the, what we've done in the last couple of weeks, the practices, you know? So they're in many ways the most important thing um, and so remember the first practice, again, I'm doing these all the time, by the way, is this really beautiful one breath meditation session that comes, I learned it from my teacher, Kempo Tsultram Gyamso Rinpoche, a great uh, meditation Mahamudra master, where literally, and we'll do it right now, it's a great way, kind of anti-inflammatory, anti-viral agent to work with contraction, to work with inflammatory processes where you know we're experiencing something we don't want to experience we don't want to feel which like happens all the time right it's a really powerful way to connect to connect to your body so one breath meditation just it couldn't be easier literally for one inhalation one exhalation you bring your awareness um, as fully as you can to this breath and really it, it, it it's a it it's a sensual experience in the truest sense of that word. It's also an appreciation practice, like I mentioned last week. You're one breath away from death, right? Breathe out, don't breathe in, that's it. So appreciate, appreciate this elixir of life. And so we'll do that together for one breath, okay? Fantastic. I just got my meditation session in for the day. It's amazing. <laughs> All you have to do is string a few more of those together and you have a complete meditation session. But uh, in the Mahamudra, Dzogchen, so-called more advanced teachings, one of the central maxims is short sessions repeated frequently. Um, and I do these short little flashes more and more these days as a way to mix my meditation with post-meditation because Meditation, formal sitting practice, and retreats, of course, they have a tremendous role. But there's a near enemy, a shadow side, if you think the only way you can connect to the meditative mind is when you're doing your formal practice. Really, formal practice is a kind of remedial practice. The, the fruition is to mix meditation and post-meditation until everything be really becomes your meditation. And so we want to practice, we can practice in the incubator of our formal sessions, incubator of retreat, but most of us don't live our lives in an incubator. So how do you spread? How do you spread the meditative mind? 
This is one way. The other thing that I've also added is um, the uh, kind of complaint meditation, anti-complaint meditation. This one also has gotten me, uh, I'm sure it's, it's gotten me out of a lot of trouble and uh, also warrants reinstating. Whenever you feel, whenever you feel the urge to complain or criticize, um, and as, as our, my, our, our friend Joseph Parent contributed last week, this becomes a little bit more potent when it's not just what we're about to verbalize as complaint, but the underlying internal complaint, this kind of CNN crawler subconscious gossip that's usually pretty, pretty critical, pretty self-critical. So whether it's that or whether it's like, ah, you just heard something, you're feeling something you don't want to feel, the practice is, in fact, to stay in your body. So ask yourself when you're about to complain, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? Stay with that. Stay with that. In fact, staying with it starts to purify it. If you spin yourself out from that and start complaining about it, that actually creates karma. If you stay with the unwanted experience, that does not create karma. It actually purifies it. So the jingle here is, and it's a big one, relate to it instead of from it. Relate to it instead of from it. Relating from it is no relationship. That's just capitulating to it. Um, and so uh, remember, I think I shared this, I can't recall, the beautiful line from Trungpa Rinpoche, elegance is life lived without complaint. So next time you feel the urge to criticize, that's a big one for me, <clears throat> criticism. <clears throat> Whenever I feel the urge to complain, I want to share it. I literally, I'll be like, just about to say it. I go, oh, there it is. There it is. There's that contraction. Yeah. Don't go there. Feel it. Take ownership of that feeling. Drop into my body and stay there. So the practice I want to introduce uh, ever so briefly today, this is actually um, interesting timing. This is the uh, practice I introduced during the week, uh, the class I'm doing, the weekly class on Tuesday nights. But someone actually pinged this as a request for a brief meditation for this week, which I think is a good one. And we're going to conjoin this classic, somewhat famous meditation with, in fact, an augmentation of our one breath practice. And so I don't really have enough time to do a full um, kind of unpacking of this practice. Many of you know it's a practice of Tonglen, the practice of sending and taking. I'm going to do a somewhat rapid fire. Um, and excuse me for that, because again, I want most of this to be with you, your conversations, your questions. But I do think this is a really powerful practice. I find myself doing it a lot these days. Um, in fact, every session I start in the morning, I start with Tonglen. Literally the practice of sending and taking. And we will do it, I will guide you through it somewhat quickly in the four classic stages. Uh, we can talk about it if you want in the Q&A part. And then <clears throat> we're gonna you know, download this into our one breath format where this beautifully powerful, almost gritty level practice. It's kind of like the, the, the ruggedness of this practice is designed to handle the ruggedness of any unwanted situation. Um, and so we can conjoin it after we learn it. We can conjoin this as one single breath, which is what we'll do after I go through it. So I'm gonna guide this 
with my eyes closed, it just helps me connect a little bit more. It doesn't really matter, eyes open, eyes closed. <clears throat> and there are four classic stages here. Quite simple when you get the hang of it. And super applicable practice for unwanted situations. So the first step is just this kind of flash of openness. Just literally, most people when they first start it, it's a total fake it thing. You don't really know what it means, but that's okay. The idea is just to open, open. In a deep way, this opening connects you to the cosmos, connects you to the space of the universe. And as brief as it is, it's a bit important because it's a reminder that when you actually do this practice, you, quote unquote, are actually not doing it. The universe is doing it. So you're not going to be breathing in all the stuff that I will now guide you through. You're not breathing it in. The cosmos is breathing it in. And so this first step is important because otherwise it can be unfortunate tendency to take this stuff in, absorb it personally. No, no, no. That's a misunderstanding of the practice. So even though you, so to speak, provisionally, yes, your breath is, is the anchor here, essentially it's the universe that's doing this practice, not you. And that first step actually connects you to the universality, both of the human condition and really of the universe itself. Space will be breathing this in. The cosmos will be breathing this in. So the second step, again, on the medium of the breath, with every in-breath, you breathe in dark, heavy, black, soot-like qualities, like kind of cosmic air conditioning. And the sense is, even though it's riding the medium of your breath, every pore in your body is breathing this in. Not just your lungs, but every pore, your entire being is bringing this in. And then with every exhalation, there's a sense of offering light, coolness, purity, it's a little bit abstract in this second step. But again, through every pore of your body, you radiate out quality of light, peace, coolness, purity. When I do this practice, I play with it in several ways. One is, it's a little difficult to make this transition so quickly with one breath. So I'll, I do one of two things. One is I just breathe in more deeply, gives me more time to feel this black, dark, heavy coming in. And then the exhalation is similarly slow where I can kind of make the transition to offering The other thing I do is sometimes I'll do five or even 10 breaths where it's only on the in breath for those five or 10 that I bring in. So I'm focusing more on that. I can tune into a little bit better. 
and then there'll be five or 10 offering breaths. So I can tune more deeply into that sense of, of offering, giving, radiating. And then the third step is now you get very specific. Visualize, feel a particular situation, a person, an animal, something that you can really kind of focus on very specifically that invokes this quality of connection to suffering. Images of, for me initially, it was the, the people in ICU in Italy or those that were dying in the hallways. There's no shortage these days. And so you kind of focus in on one or two very specific instances that really touch you, that break your heart. That's what you're trying to do with this practice. In a real sense is let it break your heart. Because the heart has very unique qualities. When you break it, it gets bigger. And then with each outbreath, you send healing, light, love, peace, goodness towards that person, towards that animal, towards a specific situation, which by the way, this can also include you. You can do Tong Lin for yourself. Absolutely, positively. Just be careful when you do that. The near enemy there is indulgence. Kind of capitulating into the heaviness and getting a kind of woe is me attitude. That's, that's not quite the best way to do this. I remember very often when I first was introduced to this practice decades ago in, in really large settings, 50 to 100 people, very often people start crying when they did this practice. Because they were really contacting, compassion, etymologically means to suffer with. And so if you shed a tear, that's beautiful. That's part of being human in the opening of your heart. When I do this, I usually do it for 10 minutes. I used to do it for periods of up to a half an hour, whatever feels right for you. But you, as we'll see, you can also do it in the duration of one breath. It's the connection that counts, not the duration. So I personally do this every morning for about 10 minutes, all four stages.
And the last stage is to now open your heart, expand, to breathe in the suffering of this entire planet, everybody on it, and even the cosmos itself, limitless. But you see, your heart is big enough to contain all this. You bring it in, but you don't give it a place to land. That's what the first step does. Don't appropriate it. Don't give it a place to land. Don't start proliferating on the sensations. Bring it in, but don't give it a home. You can bring in the suffering of the earth itself these days that's being so ravaged. This is a really powerful, beautiful practice because it's so fully embodied. We're changed when we feel things, not so much when we think about them, but when we feel them, that's when we're moved to act. And so what we can do, and again, this is pretty rapid fire approach to this, but again, I want to spend more time with your discussion and Q&A. Once you get the hang of this practice, then there's no reason whatsoever why you can't do it with one breath. And I also find myself doing this a lot. I'll be watching the news, just these really painful images from all over the world. Sometimes I feel a sense of contraction. It's almost like too much. But then again, I use that contraction as an invitation to open. So literally within the course of one breath, I'll do Tonglen as a way to connect to this open heart mind on the spot. And so these practices to me are super helpful because these are my term, these kind of emergency meditations, right? You can just do them bang right there. And they're really a beautiful way to connect to the human condition. Like Pema Chodron talks a lot about these days. She's like, you know, she's the queen of these teachings. She was sharing with Oprah Winfrey and her super soul Sunday, whatever it is, this practice that I think it's in her latest book, the just like me practice. That person in the ICU <clears throat> in New York City is just like me. Their parents that can't say goodbye to them as they're dying, they're just like me. And so the more we realize that, then the more we're moved. Our, our spirituality then doesn't become sterile and ineffectual, it actually becomes empowered. And we will not burn out in the care that we provide if in fact we do practices like this properly, because you don't take this in, the universe takes it in. And the universe can accommodate anything. 
So um, somewhat quick, but for the purposes of time, and I think you'll understand and excuse me for that. Um, I wanted to just start our open forum part. Again, there were two questions that were lingering from last week. I generally uh, much prefer <clears throat> when these questions are asked um, live this way, but I do want to honor the, the two that came in from last week. I can get my other computer. Here it is. Okay, so the first one is actually a little bit connected. This is kind of cool. So my question is, how can we help those who are so scared, so filled with anxiety, so bursting with distress? Is this abundant gift yet again an issue of access? I'm not quite sure what the referent is there, but that's okay. So it depends, right? Um, if you're with someone who's scared, anxious, and full of distress, then yes, well, actually both, even if you're not, I'll get to both. You can help them with the stability and the sanity of your mere presence very often. You know, you can be of tremendous benefit to others, and this is really helpful when people are dying. You can be of tremendous benefit in these times of intense distress without saying a word. Just the stability of your own open heart mind can be of profound benefit to those around you. Um, if speech is warranted, if advice is warranted, then also this openness and silence allows you to connect more directly to what's actually happening because skillful means is not meeting others where you're at. It's meeting others where they're at. And this means having the ability to um, basically shut up and listen, to tune into where they are, to work with empathy, to connect with them without your own defensive kind of strategies coming into play. So skillful means is really meeting people where they're at. And then from there, if you listen enough in a very deep way, they will always tell you what to do. You just need to listen. The universe at any level is always sending you messages, not in a kind of psychotic Charles Manson way, but in what's referred to as symbolic guru. There are four types of guru. We can talk about the other three if you want, but one of the most compelling for me is, is the world as teacher. The phenomenal world is guru. And this phenomenal world will always instruct you if you simply allow yourself to open. The appropriate response, not reaction, is always there. If the person is not, if there's someone who's scared, anxious, full of distress, and they're not with you, then this is where Tong Lin comes in. Because it may seem from an exterior kind of perspective that, oh, there's someone all the way over in Italy. How can what I do over here have any effect? Well, the world is a lot more magical than you might think. The world, you know, this is a really big kind of metaphysical question, but we only perceive ourselves as different, me versus someone in Italy, at the most superficial dimensions of existence. The farther down we go into ourselves, the more we connect with others. And so quite, quite truly, and I've heard some of the most amazing stories around these things when people come up to me saying, you know, when here's just one of many examples, um, uh, some along these lines that, you know, a relative or someone just died halfway around the world, the person just knows it before they get the text, before they get the email, before they get any contact, they just, whoa, 
this person just died. I hear these kind of stories all the time. I've had some similar experiences myself. And so this suggests, and, and again, this is a vast metaphysical question that really goes to the structure and the nature of reality itself. The important point for us now is that this world is not made of matter. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what the high priests of science say. That's a very superficial way of looking at the world. The world is made of this ineffable, indescribable matrix that really you can't put words to it, but some affective words would be heart, mind, spirit, love. That's what the world is made of. It's made of mind. And so knowing that and knowing it with real conviction allows you to descend into these deeper dimensions, do things like Tong Lim, um, and actually have much more impact than you can possibly even imagine. And this is also fundamental instruction in the Bardo literature that you know, <clears throat> when someone dies, there's a tremendous amount you can do for someone after they died. You know, they're not even on this planet anymore. But you know that <clears throat> death is the end of a body, it's not the end of a relationship. And so by understanding these deeper structures of mind and reality, it can empower your understanding and the efficacy of these practices where you have a lot more power than you can imagine. And so um, Tong Lin comes incredibly into play there. There are other practices that maybe I'll leave for a different um, question or event, but maybe that's enough of there. And then one more, then I'll open it up to you all. This, this is also kind of connected. Is there anything outside my experience, outside my awareness? Well, several ways to address this question. Uh, not for you. <laughs> not for you, there isn't. Um, <clears throat> as they say in the non-dual traditions, everything is internal to awareness. The universe is internal to awareness. And so this goes into a really deep set of questions that I discussed on my website with when I interviewed um, Evan Thompson, when I interviewed Stephen LaBerge. I think those are the two biggest hitters that I talked to in some length about this idea is, does the mind and heart exist within the universe or does the universe exist within the mind and the heart? And they both had incredibly provocative answers that were resonant with each other, even though they didn't hear their respective conversations where there, there are truths to both of those statements, and they both relied on this, issue, this fundamental teaching in physics, which I'll just toss it out there for the deeper drivers, this idea of complementarity. But there can be truth to both of these, mind existing in universe and universe existing in mind. But to come back to this question, um, your universe, your personal universe, is not the same as the universe of those around you, but it's also not different. And somewhere in that middle way, open question arena lies the actual truth. So this is a monumentally deep question that touches on things philosophers refer to as non-contextual realism. Questions like, if I'm not looking at the moon, does it exist? Um, I can refer you to some very provocative literature on this, but it's, it's such an enormous cascade of uh, topics here that uh, I'm not sure I entirely want to go there right now unless you guys want to spend the next hour talking about this. So, and then another question, then we'll open it up. Same person. People who are not Buddhists have lucid dreams as well experiences as, as well as experiences of deep dreamless sleep. How are these experiences different from the dream and sleep yoga? Well, the experience is the same, for sure. But um, just because you're having a lucid dream or even lucid sleep experience, that doesn't turn it into sleep or dream yoga. 
That's the difference between lucid dreaming and dream yoga, lucid sleeping and sleep yoga. So um, really, there's no yoga unless you engage these experiences as a type of practice, as a way to work with your mind in these really distilled ways for purposes of transformation. So that's how they're fundamentally different. Anybody can have these at any point. These are state levels of, of awareness that are everybody, even an infant sleeps, dreams, and wakes. And so these experiences, whether they're lucid or not, happen to everybody, for sure. But they do not become a yoga unless they're engaged in as a yoga. So um, I think that one's relatively straightforward. But for now, again, my favorite part by far is hearing from you all. Questions, offerings, contributions, challenges, and the like. So up to you. Great, we have some hands raised. Uh, so we'll start with Paula. Paula, you have the audio to ask your question. Thank you so much. Paula, love your glasses. Those are awesome. <laughs> Thank you. You look like an artist. Your, your study looks like my study. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being, I'm being snooped. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's always interesting, these aspects of ourself that are shown. Yeah, is that Nisargadatta Maharaj? Who is that back there? Um, that's Hazrat Anayat Khan. Oh, fantastic. They're all the same. Yes, they are. They're all, they're all, aren't they? They're all cross-dressers. They're all the same. <laughs> right. So anyway, my dear, how can I help you? Yes, yeah, so I am filled to the brim with questions. Um, I just wanted to give a little bit of background. I actually am new to, uh, um, to Buddhism. Yeah. And I've been a Sufi for probably about 30 years awesome. and did your tricycle course on Bardo and got so much from it and was signed up to come to Phoenicia, but we'll be doing it online. Oh, so yeah. in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Well, I look forward to seeing you there, so to speak. So um, just a kind of a brief context. So I'm um, in my early 60s. And for the last that many years, I've really been combing through um, like this transformation and working out of karma of a very abusive um, and violent childhood. Oh, I'm sorry. So I am fascinated by this intersection of neurology and neuroscience and spirituality and meditation and um, and like and what is it that actually what is being transformed, what is being healed? Um, I just one um, and then I have kind of two questions mm -hmm. that so probably about six weeks ago in this journey of this transformative journey i have been on of letting go of different um, identities related to childhood um i had this what i call is my um, mask meltdown which is i decided i was going to make masks and then i botched them and i had this total five-year-old tantrum. I was throwing things and yelling and, and it really broke me open. It was profound. And I realized I cannot fix the world. It was very painful. I spent several days 
just crying. And then I came to this new place of something, of opening to more pure soul essence of, of me, um, which is kind of where I am now, which is this no thing that you've been talking about, um, this question of who am I? Um, so, um, what is my, so I guess that I'll just throw that out to yeah. you, um, because it's really, uh, and having been, um, white knuckling my healing process for 55 years, it's really this hands-off alchemy that is happening. Nice. Nice. So I'd love for you just to, like, what is transformation? Yeah. What is yeah. What is it that happens? And yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, wonderful imagery actually the, between the white knuckling and the hands off. That in itself is somewhat indicative of what's really required, which is the process of letting go, releasing, grasping. Because not all grasping is grasping towards, and this is what's going to get to my answer. Um, a lot of grasping is grasping, um, to, uh, you know, aversion, negative grasping to grasp and push away. And so these are, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's a courageous offering and, and it really speaks to me um, because it deals with one of the most profound issues in the whole psychospiritual agenda, which is in fact, what is it that constitutes transformation and growth? Oh my God, what an enormous topic. But um, I'm going to approach it. Again, there's so many different lenses as you, as you put it. There's the neuroscience, neuroplasticity end, there's the whole psychological end, there's the pedagogical end, there's the developmental end. Um, massive topic. I'm going to approach it what first comes to mind that may speak to you from a more um, inner perspective, um, kind of a yogic, inner yogic perspective um, that also blends in with psychology. And, and that is the following because when you talked about what it, you know, at the very beginning, what is it that's being healed? Um, what is it that's being hold? So let's look, look at it that way healing as holding. And so usually what happens, and again, the, the, the reason I want to mention it this way, because you talked about some really difficult experiences in early childhood that can lead, when we're so young, we don't have digestive capacities. Our, our parents digest our experience for us, like, like birds chewing food and giving it to their children. We literally don't ha have either the brain structure or the emotional inner body structure to metabolize these kinds of brutal experiences. We just don't. And so what happens is the experiences then, out of sight is not out of mind. Out of sight is into the unconscious mind and also your body. And so therefore what happens is these um, sometimes, re not sometimes, oftentimes rejected experiences because they're just too intense. They get thrown literally into the, the body-mind matrix. And I, I play on this double entendre a lot. What we say no to, the N-O, what we say no to an experience, those kind of knots literally transform into K-N-O-T-S, the knots that tie up the subtle body. And the, this leads to this incredibly deep exploration of what are called the samskaras in the Indic traditions. And what the samskaras are, and we're all infected with them. These are undigested, unmetabolized experiences that lodge within the body-mind matrix as a type of psychic abscess. 
And there they run and often ruin our lives. They, they sublimate in the, in the most negative sense so much of what happens in conscious experience. And so part of what constitutes the healing process here, and it's no day at the beach, is one way or the other, the fires must have their way. One way or the other, those experiences have to be digested. Otherwise, the energy won't flow through you. The energy gets constipated and stuck in these knots. And so to really do this type of work, it is work. It's warrior's work because you have to go into those experiences again, whether it's through psychotherapy, whether it's through meditation, there's no other way. You have to revisit that initial experience. But now you're armed with a whole new skill set that you didn't have. You've got the teachings, you've got the practices, you've got the lineage, you've got this vast armamentarium of skillful means that now gives you the courage to go back into these experiences and realize that they have to be fully experienced, digested, metabolized, and therefore cremated. Um, until we do that, they're gonna fester below the radar and constitute a large part of our lives, which is nothing more than a very sophisticated avoidance strategy for these abscesses because they don't feel good. So you have to do, and this is where like when I teach on the reverse meditations, we'll be doing this in, in Menlo, by the way, exactly this type of practice, through an artificial contrived environment, but you'll get it immediately, how this extends to what you're talking about, we will be bringing unwanted experiences in the sanctuary of sanity, created by the teachings and your body and, and, and uh, the container of the week, where you now have the crucible for transformation and it's your body. So you have, and this ties into the complaint meditation, you stay in that furnace. It may not feel good, but the spiritual path is not about feeling good. As you know, it's about getting real. And getting real means getting down to it in this way. And so this is a profoundly deep topic that, that again, I'm gonna be riffing some on this, um, both in the Boulder class I'm doing it and also in Minma. It really works with transforming these samskaras, releasing, draining those abscesses. And when you do that, you feel when those knots become undone, you feel it. Energy is released. You feel lighter. You feel freer. You feel actually reinvigorated because all that constipated energy is now being available to you. And that's what makes, pardon my French, that's what makes this shit show worth the price of admission because you know what's happening on the other side. You're going to step into this crematorium. It's like, it's like uh, Suzuki Roshi said so beautifully, you know, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. We need to be good bonfires, not smoky fires. Um, but yet when you're young, we don't have that capacity. We just don't have that capacity. And so we have to have tremendous kindness towards ourselves, my tree, Tonglin, compassion, armed with the skill set. And then, you know, again, there's so much to say here, um, Paula, but I think you get the basic idea. When you're feeling like shit, that doesn't create karma. That's the fruition of karma. To purify it, you got to stay in the shit. There's no other way. The fire must have its way. And that's why these, these traditions, they're called warrior traditions for this reason. Who wants to do that? Who wants to do that? And this is why we do things like reverse meditations. Not too many people want to redo reverse meditations because they don't feel good. Well, life doesn't feel good. And so this is a really kind of a broad finger painting way. If you want to study this more from the, from the Buddhist and also Indic tradition, look up the word um, samskara and also hatapata. And I, I, there's a couple other alam grasa, there's a couple other classic teachings 
in the Indic traditions that talk exactly about processing these um, psychic cysts and then um, the incredible liberation that ensues upon doing that deep hard inner work. So something like that, not easy, but it's the only game in town, right? I have to say it's my path. So I'm in the shit show and really not loving it, but it's extraordinary what blossoms from it, what's available. And if you if you really want to grow in this life, go to the places that scare you. I mean, my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, allegedly attained his awakening doing what's called charnel ground meditation. Going to the most horrific places, literally in India and Tibet, where, you know, literally open cremation. And, and you, didn't, you think of the worst possible situation, like today would be the ER, right? He went there intentionally as a way to invoke these really uncomfortable states of mind so that eventually he could develop an equanimous, open, purified relationship to whatever happens. And until we do that, we're, we're fundamentally just shadow boxing. We're still um, not facing the real issues. So good for you for having the courage to do that because really fundamentally, it's the only way we're gonna wake up. Thank oh, you. Thank you, woohoo. <laughs> good luck. Thank you. Step back into the furnace, it's good for you. Yep. <laughs> Okay. Okay, thank you. See you on Menla. Bye. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, the next question is coming from Ellen. And Ellen, you have the audio to ask your question. Okay. Um, hi, Andrew. Oh, look at that backdrop. Is that a green screen or actually are you in uh, DC? <laughs> um, actually, that's Branchbrook Park. I took it in March before the park was officially, officially closed. We have just as many cherry blossoms here in COVID central New Jersey as in DC. I really shouldn't talk up the park because when I go to take photos, there's usually too many people around. So, um, but it, it's been, more variety of cherry blossoms than, um, than DC. And the interesting thing is like they have early bloomers and middle bloomers and late bloomers. So you can, you have, can have like three to four weeks of shooting, but I only had one week because the park closed. Fantastic. Anyway. How can I help you, my dear? I really loved your Bardo teaching on Tricycle. I don't know how I found it, maybe on Facebook or something, but it was just really good because I've been interested in that. I read Lincoln and the Bardo. And, a great book, huh? Yeah, I know. And um, when, I, when I used to work, I listened to the Tibetan Book of the Dead on, um, you know, on audio with Richard Gierst. <laughs> It was quite dreamy. <laughs> but anyway, so like um, I've been doing the Lamron yep. and, and um, I'm on my second go around because the uh, quarantine really gave me a lot of extra time to really get into my practice. Is this with Alan Wallace, by the way, or who, who's leading this program? Oh, I belong to Nukadampa in New Jersey. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah totally. Yeah, uh, Peter Krasinski is my well, guide. Um, well. He's wonderful. Um, but he's also teaching the joyful path to good fortune, which is Geshe-la's, um extrapolation of the meditation handbooks. And it goes into real big detail, but oh. uh, I won't go into all that. But I, so my, my question was like, um, one day I was meditating on the dangers of lower rebirth. And, um, you know, and that was the contemplation of, you know, the suffering of animals or hell beings or hungry goats and we should try and, uh, well, you know, so we meditate on that, not from fear, but from realization that our actions will create our situations for our, our rebirth. 
And then this thought came to me, is like, suppose COVID knocks out the human race. Where do we reincarnate to? And a Buddhist nun I know said uh, something, there's 10,000 Buddhist worlds, but it was a, right in the beginning of a Zoom teaching, so we couldn't really go on to that too good. So I don't really know. When I asked my teacher, he said, don't worry about it. That's not going to happen. And, and he's an astrophysicist, so I kind of trust him because he's a scientist. And plus, he's been a... Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. <laughs> Tongue in cheek. <laughs> trust. I mean, don't try. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Just be a little bit careful because they, so they, don't, have, they don't have the final world on reality. Why? Where? What's going to happen? Sure. Okay. Well, um, here's an, an, there are a number of ways to look at this. Uh, deep, another beautiful, deep question. Well, not, one way to look at it is that, and this interestingly enough ties into to things like the, the teachings on emptiness, the understanding the dreamlike nature of reality. When, when we die, the, when you wake up to the nature of this world, it's an interesting kind of flip. What you wake up from, this is what the Buddha and all the awakened masters from any tradition that woke up from. It's always interesting to me. What did they wake up from? What did they wake up to? One way to look at it is they woke up from a solidified, the word is reified, solid, lasting, independent, materialistic world. They woke up from that nightmare. That's the kind of nightmare, by the way, that your astrophysicist friend dis dis describes and studies. And that's great, but it's just part of the picture. What, what, he woke up, what the Buddha woke up to is a dream, the dreamlike nature of reality, a reality that's fundamentally made of mind. And so therefore, this, this is one of the great questions in the Lombardo teachings is like, what is it that reincarnates? Where do we go? Well, on a very real level, we just transition from one dream to the next. It's like they literally say in the Bardo teachings, death is referred to as the dream at the end of time. And so what, one way to really, in fact, the only way to really answer this question is to, is to de-reify. This is where the teachings on emptiness are so critical, to de-reify the ontological supremacy of this domain, thinking that this is it and everything has to be kind of an analog of this type of materialism. Um, doesn't work that way. It's basically a transition from that solidified, reified, fallacious way of looking at the world to see that the world is much more of the nature of a dream, literally dream-like. And so then where we go is we just transition from one dream to the next. Now, what will dictate that? That's a different track of questions, and that's enormous. Only a Buddha can really answer that. But one way to explore that is to study the four aspects of transitional karma. You know, they're, they're actually rules. Karmas are immutable laws of reality. We may not like them, but just like the laws of gravity, they, these are laws of, um, of reality. And so karma causality is always operable until the, you know, the bardo, the lumos bardo dharmata. So what happens after we die, like what will dictate where you go, is your karma, your habits. And there are four specific laws, heavy, habitual, proximate, and random karma, which a little bit beyond what we can talk about here. But here's one way to get a glimpse of it. Padmasambhava says this, if you want to know your future lives, look at your present actions. Mm -hmm. if you want to learn your previous lives, look at your current condition. So you will reincarnate after you die in the same dimensions that you're taking rebirth in now. So if you want to gain a glimpse of where you're going to be reborn, 
look at the psychological states that you take rebirth in moment to moment. If you live in a really, in, again, this is not you, if you live in a really angry, contracted ugh, kind of mood, you're, you know, what is found now is found then. You're paving your way for rebirth into a hell realm. If you're living in a, in a, in a beautifully compassionate, open, loving way, you're either uh, paving your way for birth in a pure land, Sukhavati, or birth in the human realm. And so this is what I like about the Bardo teachings is, yes, they have applicability for the end of life. But to me, they have much more applicability immediately in terms of what happens right here and now. So look at the states that you take rebirth in now. Look at where you inhabit literally your states now. What is found now was found then. And so therefore, hey, I can really grease the skits for a good birth, a good rebirth. How? By leading a good life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like all the Kadampa teachers, um, uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, you know, many of these others say, bodhicitta, loving kindness, the heart that's cultivated by Tong Lin. Mm -hmm. That lays a red carpet for you in the bardos. So if you want to control your after-death trajectory, if you can't attain full lucidity in the dream state or the bardo state, then you, you stuff the ballot box, so to speak, <laughs> by being a really good person right now. That really good karma will take really good care of you. You're going to be just fine. Like where you specifically go, only, only a Buddha can answer that. Yeah. Um, there aren't too many people that can actually answer that question, and I'm, I sure can't. But the, the general kind of phenomenology processes of, sure, you can get a very powerful intimation of where you're going to take rebirth by looking at what you take rebirth in now, and also look at your dreams. Your dreams are, are an omen of what's gonna to happen to you after you die. Because dreams are mind released from sensory constraint. Your karma takes over when you're dreaming. Your habits take over. So you wanna really see where you're gonna go when you die. Look at what happens when you go and you go to, where you go when you go into sleep. I don't remember my dreams. <laughs> You can do that. That's where dream yoga, sleep yoga comes in. You can start to do that. But I think the most, the, most, the most important thing is look at the types of states that you take reincarnation in now. Where do you go? And then cultivate, cultivate good habits. You know, habit is, and karma is not always a bad thing. Habit and karma can be really good things. Stuff the ballot box. Do a lot of really good things. Then that momentum will take good care of you. Yeah. Then you can land in, in, a, in, a, in a field of cherry blossoms, just like you're hanging out. <laughs> I, I can dig that. Thank you. There you go. Right. Send, me, send me a text when you get over there, okay? I will. Send me an email. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> the Pure Lands. I'm looking forward to those. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Ellen. Okay. Next up is Rebecca. Rebecca one second. Yes. Okay, there you go. Okay, great. Um, I have two questions. One is heavy and one is light. And I'll start with the heavy one. Okay. Um, you may have read that one of the top doctors in ER in New York City, um, who's been dealing so much with COVID, committed suicide. Um, and uh, a question comes up from your experience what have you found to be the most helpful practices uh, for a person who has committed suicide? Uh, you mean for you to do for them? Right, right. And maybe it wouldn't differ at all, regardless of how they died or when they died or whatever, but I just thought I'd throw that one out. Yeah, to you. sure. Um, well, I can refer a couple of things. I can say a little bit about it. And again, 
pardon you know me putting my lemonade stand up very quickly, but in my book, Preparing to Die, a large part of that book is in fact dealing with issues like this. And I actually have a, a section about suicide and how to help people after they die. There, there, are you a student of the Buddhist tradition? Um, yes, and I actually have that. I just bought that book recently, but I haven't read it yet. So yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. What, can I ask you what, what tradition are you? Uh, um, in Tibetan and Minja Rinpoche is my oh, primary yeah. teacher. Oh yeah, Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. you're yeah. in really good hands. Well, you know, the Tibet, excuse me, the Tibetans have a tremendous skill set for what to do after someone has died. Um, there are a few uh, additional kind of practices. There's, again, so much to say here, but you can do a number of things and then some, a few specific things. So, um, again, somewhat in line with the last question. What you can do is, is actually do meritorious deeds um, because it's very interesting, according to these teachings that in a certain sense merit karma is transferable um, it's kind of the currency in a certain sense of spirituality and so the bardo teachings are very clear here that you can do things that that you know donate money donate for good causes sometimes literally it's called the releasing of lives practice where you go to a bait shop you buy all these worms and you, you know, i mean you give them out or we used to do it in nova scotia we go to the pier buy all these lobsters that were about to go to market, take them back out in another boat, let them go. And you dedicate, <clears throat> you dedicate the merit <clears throat> of all that activity specifically towards that person and then all sentient beings. So there's a tremendous imagination at work here in terms of what you can do. The sky's the limit. Any good activity that you do, you can direct that FedEx, that merit towards the dying person. Um, you can also do things a little bit more esoteric, that are called sir offering. I'm not going to define all these. Um, that's a burnt offering, a classic traditional practice. When I did my really long retreat, we did this as a liturgical practice every single day, very specifically designed to help people after they die. When someone commits suicide, there are also um, the king of aspiration prayers. If you're a student of the Buddhist tradition, um, Samantabhadra, any of these really powerful sacred liturgical texts you can very, very concertedly recite those um, with the aspiration that you're gonna kind of FedEx that, dedicate the merit towards that person with the dedication at the end that you want to do that. And of course, in a materialistic Western society, this is metaphysical mumbo jumbo. It's like nonsense. It's like, it's like throwing an echo against a mountain and hoping the mountain will work. Well, the world is not made of mountains. The world is made, like we've mentioned, of something much more fluid, dreamlike, malleable. And, and there's a whole riff on, we can, we can go on that. Making this transition into the world made of mind, into one made, uh, world made of matter, into one made of mind, this is the enormous transitional point in the spiritual path. It takes a lot of work. Um, in our tradition, this is, the, this is where we make the deep dive into things called Chittamatra, Yogacara, and the like. Um, you're doing this, I'm sure, with Teragar. When you make that transition, which in itself is, is no small thing, it's a game changer because then you realize, as I was saying earlier, you have so much more power than you can imagine. Um, and that's why you want to study these things because that's a type of internal empowerment that therefore imbues these practices with real gusto. And so then when you catapult your mirror towards somebody, it's not just this rhetorical, you know, like, oh yeah, whatever, I'm doing it because they tell me to do that. No, no, no. You're doing it because you know in your heart it works. 
So the rest of it, maybe I'll, I'll refer you to my book because I do everything about suicide in there. And I'm also posting a couple new things on my own website on this topic because more suicides, it's part of the second epidemic that people are worried about, this pandemic mm -hmm. of mental distress. So I'm about to post some new material on my site about suicide. Mm -hmm. so maybe for now, I'll leave it at that. Is that okay? Okay, great, great. And may I also ask my lighter question? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the relationship between grace and karma. Buddhists don't talk much about grace. You know, it's all up to you, you know, with it, it's self-responsibility and all. But you could, could you just um, speak sure. uh, briefly, uh, uh, um, or as long as you want, um, about grace yeah. and karma? Thank you. Sure, totally. Well, you know, it's funny, we don't really use that word, just like we don't use the word love all that much. But uh, it, these words can definitely be translated. We use words like blessing, right? And blessings, again, blessings really work. In terms of how they work with karma, this depends on where the grace is being applied or the blessing is being applied. So for instance, and again, it kind of um, how this applies to after death. Here's a nice analogy. When, when someone dies, the, the tradition has this wonderful image. When you're alive and you're kind of locked, your karma's locked you into this body, it's a little bit like the image is trying to have this huge tree stump on, on the earth. It takes like 25 people to move it because you know it's like heavy and everything's concretized, whatever. Well, going into the Bardos where this doctor is now, um, you're entering a highly fluid environment. So take that same tree stump and put it in water. Now one person can move it. You don't need 25. This is both the blessing and the curse of the Bardos. This is what makes them both opportune in perilous times. They're perilous if you don't know how to swim in those waters, you kind of drown. But they're opportune if you know how to swim in them. And so the way this applies to us is you can, you can, you can help, you can kind of bump, coke, coax someone, at least the traditions say this, after someone has died, because they're in a, the karma is much more fluid. In fact, that's what constitutes death, is, this, is the temporary cessation of karma. That's what death is. So for a brief period of time in the bardos, there's no karma. And then slowly, karma starts to get back into play. That's the transition from the luminous bardo of dharmata into the karmic bardo of becoming. And that takes place in certain domains and times, which is an enormous topic. But the idea is, is during that time, if you know how to direct your grace, your blessing, empowered by the belief in this sort of thing, you can absolutely positively help someone. You can't change their karma. You don't have that power. Nobody does. But you can help kind of direct them. Now, in terms of life, that's a little bit different story because things are a little bit more solidified, but only at the superficial most level. Because underneath it all, like I mentioned at the outset, below the pinched um, awareness at the top, things get deeper, more fluid the farther you go in. And so you can therefore start to help people at these deeper domains using practices that are kind of correlative to these underlying dimensions of, of actually mind. And so I'm not quite sure, I wouldn't say that a lot lighter than the other question. Um, it's just as profound. But I think somewhere in there you get the idea that you really do have the, the power of blessing, the power of grace, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a lot of chops to this. You know, blessing and grace have a lot of power. Um, and if we can harness it through a deeper understanding in these ways, then maybe we can um, both be open to ourselves to receiving it. You know, this is why you do things like guru yoga, bhakti yoga and the like, opening up your own heart mind 
So you're not so frozen so that then you can receive the blessings from the teachers or the lineage or the master or whatever, right? Um, but for others, the best we can do at that level is kind of what I call stealth help. You fly below the radar. You can affect them. I mean, um, you can affect them in ways that they may not even be aware of um, by tuning into these deeper dimensions and doing things at the level of dream or doing things at the level of deep meditation. You're starting to work with them at levels that uh, can really be quite eye-opening. So somewhere in there, something to play with. Um, this could be a whole nother <laughs> 10, 10 evening series, but it seems like part of what the implication is that if we do reach the point where the, as you said, the game changer and seeing the world as more dreamlike, fluid and malleable, then the sky's the limit as to the help one can give other people either while they're in the body or after. This is so fascinating. Thank yeah. you so much. So you just nailed it. And one last comment around this and then I'll let it go for now. As they say in the traditions, you know, with a deep understanding of emptiness, everything is possible. Without the understanding of emptiness, almost nothing is possible. So the more you go into this kind of empty nature, this is why as a, as a student of the Buddhist tradition, emptiness is everything. Parenthetically, it's interesting because it's fundamentally nothing. What a kicker, huh? But emptiness is everything in these teachings. And that's why everything in Buddhism circumambulates this core teaching. This is the great contribution of the Buddhist tradition are the teachings on emptiness. And so the more we understand that exactly as you say, the the sky's the limit. There is no limit. So somewhere in there, okay? Beautiful, thanks. Welcome. Okay, next up is Anyana. And Anyana, you have the audio. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um Where are you from? Hi, I'm I'm in Washington, DC, where the where the police uh, barricaded the cherry blossoms so that we wouldn't go near them. Oh, you're kidding. For social distancing purposes. Wow, bummer. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you so very much. Um, I'm a student of Shambhala, of Sakyamipa Rinpoche, and um, been on the path for, for some time now. And I just really appreciate uh, this opportunity to really um, have some support during this time. Cool. Nice to help. So I'm in your class, and there's a couple of things that you said that are visuals that, that are um, really really helpful for me. One is you mentioned that um, one of the things that this pandemic does is it takes off the camouflage of speed, right. so you can see what really is. And then the other image was that I think it was in the first session about redirecting the snowflakes of the snow globe for spiritual and psychological development. Oh yeah, shaking the snow globe. Yeah, right. yeah. I I really love the idea that you can actually direct then. The, <laughs> the those snowflakes yeah. um and i think it was in in the in line with what you were saying around setting good karmic patterns um to structure your life post retreat right and so one of the things that i'm discovering uh, soon we're going to be going back to work there's already quite you know i work at state department and they're already discussing going back to work and i've really enjoyed um being at home sort of in retreat because i've discovered some of the extra stuff that was unnecessary and one of the things that I've, I'm seeing with the camouflage coming off a little bit is um, how much I self-reference myself. No kidding. Huh? Um, so, for example, looking in the mirror, you know, oh, there I am. I, I'm real, you know, or, you know, thoughts and things that I want to do and goals. And it's this constant sort of narrative of a, of a self, right? And it feels very hard to penetrate. So I'm wondering, 
um, you know, if you have some like baby steps, uh, in addition to all the practices that you have, uh, that you offered, but it's like this constant self-referencing. And I'm wondering, how do I begin to create the scaffolding to self-reference back to space instead of self-reference back to this, you know, this person here, um, and Jenna with a Y, <laughs> pronounced like a J. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you spell your name? A-N-Y-A-N-A, -A. so the, the Y is pronounced like a J, and Jenna. Yeah, well, first of all, what a brilliant set of comments and questions, good for you. I mean, and I'm so glad you're taking the, the class because um, this, is, this is really kind of where we're going with it. And so, oy vey, um, yeah, I mean, this notion of self-reference, this notion of contraction is, is absolutely monumental um, to the whole game. And, and the fact that you have actually had the opportunity to see or gain a glimpse of its power and its um, kind of um, omnipresence is no, is no small thing because you know, we'll never realize how to make the jailbreak if, if we don't realize we're even in jail. And so this self-referencing thing is huge. It's this, this, this center of gravity, a narrative center of gravity, based on a great deal of misunderstanding, i.e. Um, ignorance, you know, misunderstanding of the nature of who we are and what the world actually is. And it's fundamentally the, the default mode network of the ego. I mean, that, that is in fact, what, just to show you how far this goes, um, is that this is what actually creates the ego. Ego is fundamentally uh, just an arrested form of development. It's an illusion. But the illusion is actually created through the very act of reference. And just to show you how far this goes, Talofa, the great father of the Kagyu tradition, went so far as to say, and this is why this is a central narrative of what we're doing in the course, as you will see, when the mind is free from reference point, this is Mahamudra. When one has become accustomed to this, the enlightened state has been attained. So that shows you just how far this goes. And so we work with this in a number of ways. We work with it starting at the level of the map. That's why there's all this kind of blah, blah, blah about like in the course, you know, all the stuff I'm talking about that reveals the, the speed of the mind. I mean, like I mentioned this week, the mind is so fast that you're just not hearing sound, you're bringing meaning to the sound, all the stuff I mentioned. The mind is lightning fast. And it references all experience by default. It references everything back to central headquarters because you know that's just the way habit karma works. But habit karma is not intractable. It can be deconstructed. And so as I mentioned, to deconstruct is to deautomatize. To deconstruct is to see and this is why, as a student of Buddhism, you understand maybe a little bit Abhidharma, understanding the kind of atomistic nature, what happens when you take a very close look, like a scientist, at your mind. You start to realize all these subliminal, lightning-fast processes that are taking place that, without examination, create the illusion of what we know is, is our entire experienced world. You know, we just take everything as a given. It's not a given. It's a form of construction. Exactly what we'll be talking about next, this coming week, by the way. It's called vikalpa, savikalpa. How it is that we construct this shit show called self and other. <laughs> and we do it all the time. And so we study this at the level of the map. 
developing a tremendous appreciation both from the Abhidharma tradition and also conjoined with things like neuroscience, just how fast and facile the mind is, then we, you know, that gives, gives us a sense of appreciation of the incredible sophistication, the subtlety, you could even say the intelligence of the whole egoic agenda. It's incredibly sophisticated apparatus that keeps us living in the dark. So you start to understand that at the level of the map, you start to slow down, right? To deautomatize is the first, you know, automaticity is um, exposed when you uh, slow things down, right? You start to do that meditation. But as I mentioned in the class also, um, the shamatha phase is just the first phase. Then you have to see. So that's the Vipassana component. And so you see at the level of the map. And then most importantly, when you start to get to these meditations, especially, guess what? The non-referential meditations, right? And this is what's so genius about these wisdom traditions. They have an antidote, a remedy, not only in terms of the map, the teachings, but more importantly, meditations, the territory, for everything. So we'll be progressing in, in this class, starting in two weeks, with the non-referential meditations, which are initially a bit painful because they will reveal to you, again, we're gonna remove yet another set of camouflage to show how sticky and contracted the mind is. It's a bitch. I mean, we're so contracted, we're so self-referential, we're so sticky, we don't even know. We're, not, we're so stuck on ourselves, we don't even know it. So we're gonna be doing somewhat painful meditations in a playful way, of course, where we're gonna take this crowbar into the psyche to pull apart this referential capacity. And you're gonna say, OMG, even though there isn't one, OMG, I have no idea my mind was this sticky. It's unbelievable, but see, you're starting to see that. You're starting to already see that. So we're gonna bring, bring that out in blazing relief then we're going to say, whoa, now I can start to work with it. Now I can start to unstick my mind. Now I can start to work in these beautiful, um, using Minga Rinpoche's terms, that's a practice I'll be riffing on, open awareness practices where we do non-referential meditations that then bring all this blah, blah, blah into your direct experience. And this will, this will change the course of your life. Um, this is an absolute utter game changer. And it all comes about from releasing the grip, somewhat akin to the earlier questions, opening your heart, opening your mind, developing the great equanimity so that your mind can just flow with ease across whatever arises. So your, your question, my dear, is, is a very deep, profound one. It may be because you are taking the class, I'll let it go for now. Um, and we'll be coming back to this, well, in the course, of course. But there, this is such a central player right now that um, when you really start to go into this in great, deep, in great depth, this is a really profound set of teachings. So thank you so much for the opportunity to just start to even riff on it. And maybe I'll let it go because that's where we're going in the class. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Good luck in DC. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Um, the next question is coming from Katie. And Katie, you have the audio. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Hey, Andrew. Uh, I can't thank you enough. This has been um, literally a lifesaver. I like the image about learning how to swim. I feel like you're first you threw the lifesaver out and now I'm not drowning and I'm learning more about how to swim. So uh, thank you. 
And um, I just, uh, I, I do have a question, but I wanted to make a comment about how, um, it's hard to comment on how everything is affecting me, but, but this has been so helpful during what I'm calling the COVID retreat here for me, because um, my practice moment to moment is just to be open to whatever arises and bring some loving presence to that. And that is um, really helping me, I think, in terms of moving through karma, you know, like I'm really trying to be with it, like physically, like loving and then embody what do I want to feel. So that's helpful. And then in, in regards to um, a couple of questions that just arose, uh, one thing I've been doing after I do that, like whatever it is I am encountering, I've been dealing with a lot of loss as everybody has, you know, when, when the wave comes over me and I allow myself to feel it, after that, I, um, I say the Tara mantra because I have a profound connection with Tara. And that kind of puts me in a space beyond myself, just by virtue of what my connection with Tara is. It's kind of a big, spacious thing beyond me. So, so I thought I would just share that because enjoying oh, the kind of things you're talking about in terms of opening to what is, being willing to feel it, embody, but then I'm just left there as a self. But then I go beyond by doing the Tara mantra. So, so I find it's helpful. And I guess that's like blessing what you're talking about. I'm actually reaching out to something beyond myself because I can't get beyond myself. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, so, so anyway, I thought I'd share that and, and just, you know, I'm so, I, I, I can't just say how thrilled I am. Okay. But, so I wanted to share that. And then I wanted to ask you a question last time. Um, and I can't remember if it's in here because I'm also taking a Bardo class. So I don't remember where, but at some point it rose in my mind. Um, about connecting with people who died. Um, my father was born in the last pandemic in 1918. Wow. If he was alive, he'd be 102. Yep. He died about 10 years ago. And I wasn't able to be there with him, which was very sad for me because I have quite a strong connection with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Like I studied it and taught it for 14 years. And a lot of my thinking was I'd be there when my parents died, but I wasn't for my dad. Anyway, the question is, since things are not as material as we think they are, could I actually connect with him even though it's been 10 years since his death? Oh my gosh, yeah, that's a great question. Let me, let me just say something, if you don't mind, with what you said at the outset, and then I'll, I'll give you a, a sense of this impossible question. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But what you said about mantra is really beautiful, right? Um, yeah. Thank you for that offering. You know, mantra literally mind protection. And what in this case, that mantras work at so many levels, but in this case, mantra can serve as a protection against contraction. Um, and I, I work a lot with, with mantras. And it's part of this narrative that I mentioned at the very beginning. Since you're taking that class, remember what, what Mingi Rinpoche says, I think I mentioned it, that one of the most important things we can do around situations like this is, is be become bigger, be bigger than the problem, be bigger than the problem. And, and this cannot be overstated. Things become problematic when, when we become smaller than the problem. We implode into the problem um, and the, the problem takes over. It just consumes us. So Mingyur Rinpoche talks about, you know, when he nearly died on the streets of India. And if you haven't read this book, you have to read this book, In Love with the World. I mean, it's a masterpiece. He says, you know, at the end of the book, one of the central ingredients is you just, you just become bigger. You open, open, open. You become bigger than the problem. And so 
mantras, whatever it takes to get you outside of yourself, connecting to Tara, to it doesn't matter, whatever allows you to open your mind from remember the image from shot glass to Lake Michigan, then that mind can take anything, just like what we did at the beginning of Tong Lin. It's not the shot glass that takes in the pain of others. That's that small mind. It's the big mind, as they say in Zen, the universe takes it in. So thank you for that offering. The second thing, can you help your father 10 years after? Well, yes and no. Um, what you knew as your father no longer is. In fact, what your father knew as himself and what you knew of him as your father when you were even alive wasn't what either of you thought. You know, you were both, we all are by default, just associated with these kind of outermost dimensions. And that's completely fine. But um, that part of your father you cannot reach because that part of your father never existed to begin with. However, you can, you can reach him, so to speak, um, in somewhat in, in the same way that you can reach others that we were talking about earlier through the dedication of merit. And this is why, you know, if you're a student of these wisdom traditions, this is why merit is such a big deal. And I have to tell you, in the last year of my retreat, um, I did my three-year retreat. In fact, Minga Rinpoche came in to teach us in the last year. And we were all so-called advanced students, you know, and I, I, for one, in my arrogance, was expecting he's going to come in and talk about, you know, the six yogas and the rope or, or Mahamudra, some super esoteric teaching. And he came in and talked to us about merit. And at first it was like, are you effing kidding me? I mean, everybody knows about merit. And I realized, no, we don't. I didn't know about merit. It was a really humbling, disarming teaching. I mean, you know, we're supposed to be advanced practitioners doing these super esoteric practices. And here comes this really high Lama talking to us about merit. And I'm going, give me a break. Well, I was the one that needed the break because I didn't understand the power of this thing called merit. It, it completely shape-shifted my approach to it. And actually the fact that he did that was a massive teaching. So for sure, you cannot help your father because the father you think you know didn't exist even when he was here. But what you can do is what's called santana. You can help his mind stream. It's not his mind stream, but you can help with that indestructible continuum that once manifested as him, you can help that. And you can do that through very concerted dedications to the very best of your ability, using the memory of your father, but also underneath it, realizing that that's just a, that's just a training wheel. That's just a bit of a teddy bear to show you, that's to connect you to him, but then you're, gonna, you're going to affect him at a deeper level. And this is why um, merit is so emphasized, if we understand it. I mean, merit creates world systems. I mean, we, this world is a product of merit. So it has tremendous power. Um, if you want to read about this, to give it some kind of doctrinal teeth, read things like Kala Chakra Tantra, second chapter, stuff like that. But at long story short, you absolutely positively can affect him, quote unquote, but it's no longer the him that you think it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. And I already ordered the, the book by Minga Rinpoche. <laughs> such a beautiful book. You know, it's taken a while for Amazon to get it here. It must be like everybody's ordering it now. I hope they should. Everybody on this planet should read that book. Well, I think it's happening because usually the book comes right away. It's been a couple of weeks now. Yeah. yeah it's a masterpiece in my opinion. So something like that, does that work? That's very helpful. Thank you. This whole cool. thing, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Bye. So we got time for a couple more. I got, I got to shimmy out at 2.30 again.
All right, great. Um, well, next up is Judith. And Judith, you have the audio to ask your question. Hi, Andrew. <clears throat> Hi, Judith. Um, Andrew, I have a question about the mind. And in, it's been my experience that the mind, I need the mind to get me into meditation. And just to go back a minute, when I was young, when I was about nine years old, I used to walk along the road and wonder if it was going to happen. I could say, sometimes if I said the wait, word... Wait, wait, wait a second. Wonder if what was going to happen? The road? Well, no. I, I would say something. I would say now. I would say the word now. And I would get this experience sometimes. And, and I would wonder, was it going to happen? Wasn't it going to happen? And what happened was, is when I said, sometimes when I said the word now, I would think now has already gone. And I would get this feeling of being on a swing, you know, like, so just to liken that to meditation, I sometimes can't get into meditation without my mind. I have to like imagine, imagine, I have to imagine sometimes these deities or whatever it is in order to get into the meditation. I can't just get into emptiness or, or, or whatever, or, get into that position where I'm not attaching to the thoughts without using my imagination to get me there, to put myself into some kind of state. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things right off the bat. Um, it depends on your definitions, right? So you're tossing a couple of terms out that, that really have broad spectrum definitions. One, of course, is mind. Um, what exactly do you mean when you say mind? Uh, do you mean sem? Do you mean rigpa? Mind, again, it, it, it's what's called a multivalent or polysemous term. It has so many different definitions depending on the context and where you're using it. So I'm going to have to ask you to clarify what you're talking about. By well, it, I mean, wait, let me finish. Let me finish. The second thing is when you say you can't get into your meditation, the second question for me then would be is what meditation? Because that's another one of these vast cashment terms of which it's like when you say sport, well, what sport are you talking about? So it will help me to do think two things. When you say mind, what do you mean? And when you say meditation, what are you referring to? Right. Okay. So when I say mind, it's a pretty fundamental. I don't mean rigpa or anything like that. I mean my normal busy okay. mind. Fixed consciousness. Yep. Yeah. And then meditation is, gosh, I'm not so refined that I have special meditations that I go into. I just try and find that place in myself where I'm, I become bigger and fuller and don't, don't, get, um, don't get involved in my thoughts. Right. Okay, great. Now that's super helpful. So yeah, so mine, that's, that's also called SEM as opposed to Rigpa. Specifically, it's sixth consciousness. And, and this may seem like, oh, geez, this is nitpicky, yeah, blah. Well, again, it's, it's kind of this, this more nuanced, subtle approach to things um, that may seem somewhat academic and whatnot, but it's actually not. It, it has some importance. Um, and so in terms of the, perhaps the heart of your question and this idea of getting into your meditation, there's a lot to say around this. You know, one is, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I hope you'll, it'll be conveyed properly, is when you say something like, you know, I'm trying to try to find this place, here's a, here's a, a, a very, very potent tip. 
um, stop trying, open, open, open. Because what you're, what you're trying, the trying can actually be the preventing. What you're actually, and this is, this is such a profound, deep teaching. What you're actually trying to access is always already 100% present. In fact, it's, it's, not, um, it's not difficult to find. It's impossible to avoid. What you're looking for, this thing that you label the meditative state, um, at its best is something that's always already 100% present. There's nothing ever that's not it. That alone is like, ugh. It's like, um, you know, my, my recent riff on this is only nirvana exists. Only nirvana, that's all there is. Only the enlightened state. That's all that exists. Samsara is just not seeing nirvana completely. And so, as Trungpa Rinpoche said, sooner or later you will discover that striving is the only obstacle. Trying itself is the only obstacle. So one thing that you may try, quote unquote, is just stopping to try, just literally opening. And this, this becomes such a, a mind F because people always think, you know, we're not human beings, we're human doings. I have to do something, I have to do my meditation, I have to attain enlightenment. That's just the way we've been conditioned. We're not conditioned to be human beings. If we just allow ourselves to be, to open, then we're gonna to come to this staggering realization that OMG, even though there isn't one, <laughs> it's been here all along. I've just never seen it. I've been trying too hard. It's hiding in plain sight. Um, this leads to a, 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 the entire battery of wisdom teachings based on non-duality, which of course are a big deal. But I think for you, perhaps is, you know, we, we play this game not too tight, not too loose. Maybe a little bit too tight. Um, maybe just drop the agenda and allow yourselves to just allow yourself to just open, open. The one breath meditation is kind of designed to do that. Don't try too hard to establish anything. Try to just open fully to everything. And then you'll find what you're looking for. The seeker, um, you're, you're actually looking for the seeker itself. It's already there. And so this may seem like, like what the heck is he talking about? But this is the kind of the culmination of the teachings. All these relative skillful means will get you to that point where you just literally relax and open. So something like that, if you want to guide it another a little further, let me know. But mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's helpful, Andrew. But what about when you, you know, when you, um, when you have to imagine these deities? That's a different thing. So that again depends on the meditation. See, so. So if you're doing Vajrasattva, for instance. That's different, exactly. So there, are all these other meditations have their place, right? And so if you're doing, what's called Yidam practice, deity yoga, if you're doing Vajrasattva practice, which is incredibly powerful practice then that, that, in fact, is a doing practice. That's a little bit different. So I, you know, that's why I asked you what you mean by meditation. So if you mean Vajrasattva, that's a different story. Then, then you can maybe start with something like I was just saying, to settle, to ground. And then when you, you know, try to work your mind with the deity doing practices like that, then honestly, the greatest thing to do literally is just develop increased familiarity with the practice itself, just spend more time with it. 
And then as you start to understand it more, you start to do it more, you understand the view behind it, like why am I really doing this? That's always super helpful. One of the greatest gifts that was given to me in my three-year retreat, when I was given like 60 different practices, was like, you know, I, I set it upon myself, what does it really mean to accomplish this practice? What am I doing? Why am I visualizing these things? You know, whatever the practice is. That's why right view is so important. Why am I doing this? If you understand the view behind things like Vajrasattva, then a lot of the questions you're talking about will start to click into place. Uh, the answers will start to come to you. So maybe study, um, again, I can give you a ton of resources if you want. Are you doing it under whose auspices or direction? Who's the, who's the... Yeah, uh, Kilom Rinpoche on Wood Island. Yeah, wonderful. I, I know him. He's a beautiful human being. Um, so, you know, maybe read a, the creation and completion text that Sarah Harding translated. That comes immediately to mind. There's quite a vast literature these days on, on the generation stage practices. I would, you know, I would just study that stuff voraciously until you really know in your bones, what is this spiritual technology trying to accomplish? Why am I really doing this? Once you get that, then you're going to go, ah, and then you, guess what happens? You'll be able to relax into it. You'll be able to like, so, you know, prep the ground by doing a little bit more study. Then when you do the practice, first of all, you'll be more inspired because then you're not just doing this without, you know, kind of a curious, inquisitive question in mind. You'll do it because you know why these great masters came up with this practice. And when you do that, a lot of what you're talking about, I think, will remedy itself. It certainly has for me. And that's why I, I, I really always take it upon myself, no matter what I do, what does it mean to accomplish this meditation? Why did this spiritual technology come around? And if you understand that, then you'll empower your practice and it'll pretty much take care of itself. And Andrew, I hate to take up more time, but can you just tell me the deities, are they just wisdoms? I mean, they're not, you know, they're not. They're archetypes. Yeah, the deity, they're, again, there's so much to say here. The deities are, they represent archetypes of your own being. They are within you. So we work with these deities in external forms as kind of training wheel practices. But fundamentally, the archetypes are within you. These are what are revealed, of course, when you die. I mean, this is what constitutes the pantheon, the parade of the hundred and peaceful wrathful deities. They, they, so to speak, they don't, don't reify or anthropomorphize them. They're just energetics. They're archetypal energetics. Um, and they will be released as the body drops away. That quality of your mind is, is actually released. And so they represent fundamentally the kind of archetypes of the awakened mind, dimensions of your mind that you can then kind of like a tuning fork, cultivate, invite, invoke, and then kind of um, allow their magic to work from within you. That's, That's fantastic. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I love the, the deity yoga. Is a, it's a third of Vajrayana practice. It's a huge part of my curriculum itself. But thanks, everybody. I need to run. I always got to get out by 2.30. Join us next week. Um, same kind of thing. Questions are so great. I love this part. So continue, please, to offer your questions. Wash your hands. Open your hearts. Take care of yourselves. And I'll see you next week, okay? Bye.